Hello, and welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. My guest today is the prolific Chicago-based multidisciplinary artist Eric Leonardson. As a creative, he wears many hats. As a composer, a radio artist, sound designer, instrument inventor, improviser, visual artist, and a teacher. I first became aware of Eric's work when I saw a video of an instrument he invented called the Springboard, which is an electroacoustic percussion instrument made from found objects that are essentially attached to a piece of wood, the most prominent of which is a very large coiled spring. As an improviser, composer, performer, Eric has worked with a long list of collaborators, including award-winning South African choreographer Robin Orlin. His theater, radio, film, and video credits have been seen and heard internationally. He has a number of recordings and writings to his credit as well, and you can read about just about everything that I mentioned and a lot more on his website, ericleonardson.org. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks, John. I suppose let's just start with what you're working on currently. You're on this tour, doing a lot of performing, uh, and maybe that would lead to a discussion about your uh, instrument building practice, which we kind of share. That's kind of a common ground for us and how I discovered you. So tell me a little bit about what's going on on this tour and what kind of things you're doing now. Um, I, I'm bringing my uh, self-built instrument, the springboard, which you had mentioned in your introduction, uh, with me. Um, currently, I'm in Germany, and um, I'll be heading over to um, uh, Hamburg um, uh, to perform in the, the Blurred Edges um, Festival uh, with a group with some um, really um, esteemed players uh, from from France, from Germany, um, and, and locally uh, from Hamburg. Uh, I think we have a uh, another musician also from London in the group. So it'll be a, a, a quartet. And um, to describe the uh, the springboard, um, the idea, as you uh, mentioned, was um, to, um, well, it's, it's a simple instrument, and I've been playing it for 20 years. So um, I've achieved a certain level of, um, uh, I guess you would say, virtuosity with it. But um, it's it's a very non-traditional instrument. It's also uh, very simple. Um, essentially, uh, it's just a um, a piece of wood with a contact microphone attached. And then I chose particular objects that are I was interested in for their sonic profe- uh, pr- potential. Um, those being the um, the coil springs. Um, it has many coil springs on it, and um, the board's uh, mounted on a, uh, a walker uh, um, that I picked up at a thrift store. You know, it's just a an assistive device for right. walking. Um, so um, it, it actually works ideally as um, as a a very lightweight uh, stand for the board. So I can stand up and perform with it. I use cello bows and things. And in addition to having uh, several uh, coil springs on it, um, um, there are um, um, thin pieces of wood um, of different lengths and densities that are attached to it. And a a sort of grill from a, a, a laboratory refrigerator. And I've, I've, 
uh, snipped out parts of the tines on the grill so I can pluck it with my fingers and get different tones. I use cello bows to bow the coil springs, and that brings out really um, very rich harmonic and inharmonic tones. It sort of swings back and forth between it. So um, the kind of sonic world I'm dealing with uh, on the springboard is uh, consists mostly of indefinite pitches, uh, or pitches that slide uh, in between uh, the uh, the black and white notes on the piano keyboard, you might say. Right. And people uh, associate the sounds with uh, voices and uh, industrial kind of machinery. And um, uh, some think it sounds nefarious and ominous. And um, uh, sometimes I use... Um, uh, radios uh, as instruments to to pick up uh, broadcasts and uh, or just the uh, the static noise between stations and uh, send it out through the earphone jack on a handheld uh, battery operated radio uh, uh, fed into a, a piezo disc contact microphone uh, which can be reversed as an output device uh, so the vibration can be um, imparted into the springboard by touching various parts of it, um, which has a, an interesting filtering effect. So, um, so the, the sort of, if you want to call it a sonic world, you know, it's indefinite pitches, uh, noises, um, uh, picking up things from radio uh, uh, suggests, you know, a, a certain kind of electronic character um, and a certain element of chance is involved because uh, you never know what's going to be broadcast to you at a certain point when you're tuning into the radio, mm -hmm. especially in places where you've never visited before. Um, and um, other things too are uh, friction mallets made from um, simple plastic bouncy balls, um, you know, with uh, bamboo uh, skewers uh, uh, stuck into them. So right. dragging them, it's, Comes a different kind of bow actually so it's a you know the stick slip action of the, the the bouncy balls that allow you to bow the wood sticks and people really um uh, get a laugh out of that because it sounds like uh or some say it sounds like um whale voices or oh, yeah. you know uh, animals sounds i also bow the the wood sticks and things so um there's a, a, a musician who passed away, a wonderful musician passed away a few years ago, Hans Reichel, he had an instrument called the doxophone. And so, um, and it's basically a, uh, a wooden stick that's amplified with a contact microphone. And it was really a nicely constructed instrument that he had made. And other people made some too, um, on his, based on his design. But anyways, it, it produces an amazing range of sounds, um, and it's it's uh, it's really quite brilliant. And so I have a kind of crude version of the doxophone mm -hmm. on my springboard. So, um, so, so I, if I could that's ask a little a, bit about the instrument, okay, yeah. yeah. If I could ask a question a little bit, um, mm -hmm. you know, as a as a percussionist myself, and I think uh, I mean a lot of the people that listen to the show are also percussionists. That's it seems to be kind of my audience so far. But, oh, okay. Uh, okay. So, so you know, pretty familiar with Super Bowl, you know, mallets and this mm -hmm. type of thing. But 
you know, I just sort of discovered this whole subculture of instrument design and builders. And I, I, you know, I recently had Tom Nunn on the show, who was out in San Francisco, who was terrific and and makes some just amazing instruments. And of course, Mark Applebaum, who's more of a (laughs) known as a composer, but also, you know, makes these fantastical uh, sound sculptures. And so, uh, you know, it was based on that, that I sort of discovered this sort of world and found you and found Tom through, uh, through Mark. But the thing that, that fascinates me is how one arrives at this idea of building one's own instrument. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the conceptual like moment when you decided that you wanted to, um, I mean, how you discovered that you wanted to do this and then where that led, what was the next step of, of, you know, entering into this world of instrument design and building? Yeah, that's a really, uh, nice question. Um, if I can pinpoint it though, uh, that could be tricky for me. Okay. Um, but well, generally, um, I had been playing, um, drums and the drum kit, I, in, a, in a facetious way, I, 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 I find myself saying I, I, I got tired of hitting things. Uh-huh. So, that makes perfect um, sense but, to me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, and, 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 but more seriously, I, I think um, the drums are, are wonderful, and, um, but I think I was feeling a little limited by them um because i was also working with electronics uh, you know a synthesizer and you know and back in the 80s you know and this is when i was going through this process back in the 80s mm-hmm. you know digital samplers were becoming available so that really sort of um blew everything apart and so um the 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 physical constraints of what, what an, an instrument could be with the the new uh, electronic and also digital technologies that were coming out suggested that you could create uh, a new kind of instrument that was really suited to your own um it seems a little odd to say your own vision but it's really your own you know sense of what you wanted to hear and in your own physicality or in sense of physicality so that uh, making sounds could be more like making, um, well, I come from a visual arts background. So drawing and painting were my sort of natural gifts, if you will. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there was a, an immediacy with drawing and painting and uh, working with uh, clay and other materials where you could get a result in a very tactile, immediate sort of way. However, with electronics, that just simply wasn't possible. And uh, I mean, I, I could twiddle knobs, but or I, I could sort of bang away at a keyboard, but I was not a keyboard player. And so the interface was um, lacking. So, so all of this is to say that I was interested in new kinds of sounds, discovering sounds. I had exposure to percussion ensembles that were using brake drums and other everyday kind of repurposed objects mm-hmm. uh, as a part of their instrumentarium. The the promise of, uh, of electronic and digital technologies uh, for making new sounds uh, were, were there, a little out of grasp, but it, it came into reach or became graspable uh, or um, 
you know, tangible when I met Hal Rammel in 1990. He gave an instrument invention workshop, as it was called that year, um, hosted by the Experimental Sound Studio in Chicago. He, um, uh, Hal had been making instruments um, sort of based on folk instruments, pieces of wood, but to, great, uh, to transmit or conduct the sounds out on the materials he, he was using, he was using a contact microphone. And I think I may have known about contact microphones, but just had never tried it. And, and so Hal uh, is, 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 is so approachable and inviting and, and just showing me that uh, kind of, that was the light bulb that went off. And that was kind of the trick. So um, I think the, the simple contact microphone really opened everything up in terms of uh, discovering new sounds from things that are normally inaudible. So, um, yeah. so that's kind of my story. Um, I can go on from there, but I, I began exploring coil springs and it was after a few years of experimenting with them that I, I decided I just wanted to hear a, a large spring. I went to the hardware store, found a scrap of wood in my studio and put them together, uh, you know, stretched it, uh, the coil spring across the board with two big eye bolts stuck on either side and then I put my contact mic on it bowed it and the sound was awesome yeah. and um, that prototype uh, became the springboard that I've been playing since then you yeah. know, more than 20 years ago yeah uh, so now I, I would also add that I don't know if I was really trying to make no I wasn't trying to make an instrument with that I just wanted to hear different kinds of sounds so I was just making uh, putting things together just to hear the sounds and so that was always uh the guide so my approach i suppose to making instruments has always been one of just identifying materials and objects and going oh what kind of sound might that make if i bowed it or if i tap it or activate it in some way or another with a contact microphone attached. And so it's just a matter of trying different things out until you find some that are really wonderful and the ones that aren't interesting, I, I don't bother with them. And, and over time, I find enough. And so I had been going through that process for a few years. Yeah, and so it was in 94 when I put, as I mentioned, put the this one particular piece of wood uh, with the eye bolts and this coil spring together and found something that was really nice and and then I, I started adding other things to it and eventually I mounted it on a walker and and I you know I knew I had an instrument at that point yeah yeah but I, I kind of uh, stumbled into it um, yeah well I wonder how many people just sort of stumble into this kind of work because uh, or or in some way they're they're moved toward it uh, because as you said you know like if you're a musician they get tired of their instrument or it just becomes not interesting or they're looking for new sounds you know I remember uh, the first time I discovered contact microphones it was to play John Cage's child of tree and, mm -hmm. and that yeah. piece you know uh requires you to amplify a cactus and right. of course cage was doing it with uh, the little needle from a record player uh the little mm -hmm. cartridge um but mm -hmm. you know i figured out that uh, i took a class and figured out that um 
it was sort of a class about electronic percussion, like MIDI and this type of thing, and they were using these piezo discs as drum triggers. And so yeah. it's much cheaper to go to Radio Shack and buy one of these piezo buzzers and, you know, sort of break it apart and make it yourself. And then right. I figured out that that I could use that on the cactus, and that it sounded great, you know, and uh, <laughs> was pretty amazing. So um, yeah. a similar sort of experience with that. And then, of course, then when I had the contact microphone, then I was contact micing everything, you know, <laughs> everything in the percussion yeah. studio. I was like, what is this? What would this thunder sheet yeah. sound like if I hooked up a yeah. contact? Yeah, and made some just incredible discoveries of sound and. And then, mm-hmm. you know, as a classically trained percussionist, you know, I sort of uh, had to do other things. And so I went off and but then I had this opportunity to kind of um, creatively respond to one of Mark's pieces. Uh, and that's when I sort of rekindled this interest in, you know, the hidden world. Uh, you described it so eloquently earlier, something about the, you know, finding hidden sounds or unheard yeah. sounds. It sort of acts as kind of a like a magnifying glass on, on Absolutely. sound. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. anyway, so I think that's fascinating and interesting. So I want to kind of not necessarily back up a little bit, but I want to find out what was in the air in uh, Chicago and then in the eighties when you were there. So you got mm-hmm. your bachelor's degree was in visual art, but then yeah. I see that you got an MFA from the art Institute there in Chicago where you now teach. Yeah. Uh, right, so right. what what was happening? Uh, like, what was the scene like in the '80s? Because you talk about uh, in your bio, you talk a little bit about experimental theater that you, your work sort of started to spill over into these other areas. What did you mm-hmm. do during your MFA? I mean, I assume that's a time when you really expanded and started working in other areas of uh, of art making and sound and that type of thing. Yeah, um, the um, the degree program was called Time Arts. So that really left it open to um, a, a very interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary approach to uh, um, making work and, and thinking about it. I came folk, uh, with an interest in focusing on sound, and the School of the Art Institute of Chicago had a sound department. So there was no music department, and there wasn't a media arts department where sound would be like sound for video or sound for theater or sound for film or something like that. Uh, but it had its own sound department. Uh, the faculty was very small at that time. It was just Bob Snyder. But uh, being a time arts department, I was also uh, taking courses in video and in performance. And I would add that, or maybe we've already stated that I came from a, uh, a, a visual arts background. So mm-hmm. um working in visual media, uh, painting, drawing, printmaking, um, sculpture, and, and then going from that into performance was um, very exciting, if not just simply terrifying. But mm-hmm. it, it really changed my life uh, and uh, really connected me with, first of all, my own body and how to use that. Um, uh, so our our, our introduction to performance was really like a uh, a movement workshop uh doing uh uh contact improvisation um learning a little bit about movement in the traditional way as well as you know the more contemporary forms yeah i guess contact improvisation would be part of that and then working with uh video and and image processing and and also 
I was very interested in uh, in the scene uh, at the time. Uh, there was a lively kind of punk, post-punk scene. So I was playing drums with musicians and um, you know and performing in in bands with you know non-musicians and musicians both. I think uh, punk or new wave gave us license to uh, pick up instruments even if we didn't know how to play them. And uh, so that was one way to kind of put things out in in the real world in front of audiences. And um, so there was kind of a loft scene. There was a place called the Noise Factory at the time. Um, So I was doing music, but I was also interested in sound as an art medium. And so the sound department was was good for that. Um, I also had an introduction to uh, analog synthesis with... um, a, uh, a modular uh, system from EMU, um, and uh, we still have that that big uh, instrument in our in the sound department now. As it turned out, though, um, there was more of a community in, in the performance art area uh, than any other, or at least that's what I felt uh, connected with. So I, I felt uh, I was I was doing some performance pieces that were not necessarily musical. I was really interested in combining, you know, visual sound and movement together. And uh, after I finished school in 83, I think I went through kind of a crisis. I wasn't really sure if art was really going to do much to change the world. And I thought (laughs) that's really what it, uh, it needs to happen. And, um, but uh, I kept working and tinkering in my, my little studio after I finished grad school and um, eventually picked up um, a used uh, Korg MS-20 synthesizer. Some, I had some secondhand microphones in my drum set and I got my hands on a Revox reel-to-reel. And those are the tools that I had to uh, record and make sounds, creating a, a sound uh, works in the recorded form became kind of a focus. Uh, the cassette four track was a new thing that came out in around 1984. So um, I could afford to do multi-track recording that sounded pretty good. Uh, w- one thing that defined the 1980s was the fact that having high quality uh, recording equipment was really out of reach for anyone that had no budget or anyone that was not connected with either a commercial uh, studio or um, uh, connected in the academic area. Yeah. So uh, independent artists who were interested in experimenting with audio media were really at a loss. So it became necessary to um, uh, team up uh, with other artists who had the same interests. And there were a few of us, a handful of us in Chicago, a lot of us connected with the Art Institute. We met up and uh, talked about forming some kind of cooperative uh, arrangement, and that that grew into a, um, a, a nonprofit uh, public access sound studio called Experimental Sound Studio. Started up in uh, with that in '86, '87, and it's still going now uh, to this day. Uh, uh, directed by uh, Lou Malazzi, who also teaches in the sound department, which is where I teach over at 
the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. So have, did you, um, so when you uh, were done with your MFA, uh, you, you sort of stayed in Chicago in the area. At what point did you get back into teaching and being affiliated again with the, with the school? I started teaching, let's see, in 1997. So I'd been working freelance all through the 90s. Um, and uh, I think, you know, the late 80s, early 90s, mid-90s, it was just like a long, slow process of just working freelance and just trying to make my uh, rent. Um, mm-hmm. Also directing a, a, a series of radio programs by artists in Chicago called Sounds from Chicago. I did that in the late 80s, early 90s. Hmm. Well, and you were getting involved, as if I read this correctly, you were getting involved with some experimental theater, like sort of the experimental theater scene in Chicago in the yeah. 90s. Is that right? And even the um, the company that you uh, co-founded, could you maybe talk a little bit about that? That's That was pretty interesting to me, too. Yeah, that's Plasticine. Plasticine, uh, that's it. the name of the company. And we started up in 1995, actually. I've been doing some sound design for some theater companies in in the um, early 90s and so people in theater knew about me and uh, and I got connected with theater because of my performance art connections. When you say sound design in the theater, what what exactly mm-hmm. were you doing? Um, writing uh, pieces or just working with live sound or sort of what does that entail? You know, when I, I first started doing it, uh, the director would hand me a uh, uh, yeah, uh, some cassettes or CDs, uh, and say, uh, we just need copies of these these bits of music to uh, to be played in the uh, particular scenes here. So it was really about just simply editing and copying other people's music. And then we need some sound that goes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 I'm sure I'll, I'll I'll make that for you. Yeah. Write that. You know. Write this. You go part, you know, it's gonna, it's like, mm hmm, okay. I know what you want. Yeah, I know what you mean by that. So, you know, so I would, you know, I'd get to plug in my synthesizer and, you know, put some contact microphones on things. And okay. I would actually get to create uh, a, a unique sound that would just kind of, uh, you know, uh, suggest or evoke uh, something that the uh, director wanted in in that particular part of the play. So, got it. So that's that was big. That's how it works. So, so the, it wasn't just you know kind of cut and dried, you know, <laughs> copy and paste kind of stuff. And then, in fact, you know, at first, it, I don't think we were working with computers. You know, the computer technology didn't really become coming to reach until well, yeah, I guess they, yeah, I had to buy used. Uh, computers but you know they were so slow um anyways that's the old days okay (laughs) well i I didn't i didn't mean to interrupt too much but i did want to sort of clarify because in my mind i'm not really sure what a sound designer for the theater does so that that clears that up Mm -hmm. now you were talking then about the plasticine this theater company yeah well uh, plasticine was really um exciting uh to uh meet and create work for because it wasn't just that you know here let's take a few tracks off of this CD of some popular music or something like that and just, you know, uh, copy it so it can be played uh, as background for this scene. And for one thing, it was not script-based theater. It was movement-based, actor-driven theater. 
the actors would write the, the work, but they would write it physically through object uh, encounters. On the first production, there was no language at all. Uh, there was no words. So it was all just all visual, uh, just the actor's movement, uh, costume changes. The piece was called Door Slam. So there were three doors, and the, the actors were going in and out of these doors. Um, and they had, um, you know, this fine mesh knit uh, um, over their heads. So you couldn't even see their faces. So there were just kind of these kind of automatons or drones or something, uh, just these figures. So I, I really got to pull out all the stops with my electronic uh, processing. By 1995, I was able to have enough gear and equipment that I could create some interesting stuff. Hmm. Oh, and I was playing with a noise band called uh, Wormwood at the time, too. So we were creating some things with kind of prepared guitars and, and my synthesizer and and uh, using environmental sounds uh, and mixing those together. So that kind of created some source material that I could throw into the, the sound design for theater. So that piece went well, and they liked what I did for them. And um, for plasticine, that is, after a year or so, uh, they decided to do another one. They wanted me to work on it. And so every time they decided they wanted to do a, uh, a, a new production, um, I was the guy uh, doing it, the sound for their pieces. So it really became uh, a process of, you could call it sound design, but I was really composing yeah, yeah. Um, electronic music for it, for their mm. shows. And and then with the springboard, I was actually playing the springboard live in those shows. So I'd be mixing between live springboard and, and some recorded sounds. And I did that with them for 17 years. So our, our wow. last production was in... Uh, 2012. Okay. Okay. Wow. That's a long run. That's, that's terrific. Yeah. 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 Wow. Wow. So, and then in, you said in 97, then you started uh, teaching again at the uh, art Institute. And so, and that academic job has continued to, to today. Is that right? Yeah. Just part-time. Part-time. So I was was just teaching uh, one class per semester in their first year program you know, kept bugging uh, Bob Snyder to see if he there might be an opening in the sound department, and um, he kept saying, "I'll keep keep your name in the in the in the hat there." So, um, and eventually, by 2002, uh, something did open up, and I was asked if I'd be interested in teaching a, a class in the sound department, and I, I I went for it. So. Great. I was teaching in both areas uh, as a part-time instructor, and uh, and now I, I, I teach a variety of courses uh, just in the sound department uh, still. But the position is still uh, part-time. Like you're, you're still uh, sort of doing freelance work and making. I mean, you're you're concertizing around the the world. Things must be going. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, things must be going really well for getting uh, work and and staying busy. Well, staying busy has always been easy for me to do. Um, <laughs> doing well financially, I, I've never figured that one out. But <laughs> life is interesting. Yeah. I'm doing a lot of interesting things in a lot of different areas with a lot of really fantastic people. So I guess you pay a price for that. So, 
Well, uh, yeah, there's a, you know, there, there's a great book. I, I don't know if you're uh, familiar with uh, Sharon Loudon's book. It's called Living and Sustaining a Creative Life. And mm-hmm. uh, I've been sort of promoting it on the show because I think it's such a great book. But she has its essays from like 40 different artists, all of whom have a different perspective on, on the, what it means to live and sustain a creative life. And she has this beautiful quote at the beginning of the book uh, that basically, you know, to dispel the myth uh, about um, the only successful artists are those that are, you know, sort of making their living from their work. Um, and it's from, the quote is actually from Carter Foster, who's the curator at the Whitney Museum. Mm-hmm. And he says something to the effect of, uh, oh, well, I could get the book, but something to the effect of that the distinction is not important, that, you know, some artists work day jobs or supplement their practice in some way or, or teach, but that the distinction is not important. It's the, the seriousness of the endeavor, the seriousness of purpose that's most important. And I, you know, I just think that's an important message to, to give to artists of, of any ilk and of any sort of stage in their career. And, you know, anyone that's listening to this show, I mean, I think that's an important thing to realize that, you know, it doesn't really matter you know, it's worth doing if you if you keep at it, and you know, it's it's just the seriousness of purpose is where it's at. Uh, what 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 are your what's your reaction to that? Thinking seriousness of purpose, yeah, uh, I think having a sense sense of purpose has not been difficult for me to 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 possess. I I think um, it it is tricky to find uh, balance uh, so that your professional and your personal life can can be manageable you know sometimes you know the pressures uh to to be successful do t- can can drive you a little crazy and uh and 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 put you in situations where you're just overextended and and then being uh a part-time teacher in uh, in the university or college level you know, there's a lot of discussion now about how the pay is so low and things like that. At the Art Institute, I think part-time faculty are doing pretty good and maybe a little better than most other adjuncts are doing. But still, it's the uncertainty gets to be hard, you know, dealing uh, with the unknowns, uh, not knowing if you're going to have uh, that class to teach in the following year, even though you, ha- you might be having a good year now, and or having to teach at many different schools and just running around and, and dealing with all the different cultures. Yeah, it's it's yeah. really taxing. But as I said earlier, I guess you you just make decisions about how far you want to go and what you're what you're willing to do or, or not to do, and just live with that. In my own case, I think um, being in the sound department at SAIC, it's it it's uh, it's an interesting place because we're able to support a certain number of artists from out of town who come to present their work, and then uh, being able to get acquainted with them, and uh, or even you know help provide them with opportunities is uh, is a good way to support. The environment uh, for uh, sound artists and experimental musicians, uh, composers, and so on. 
So, um, well, so that's a good place. And it, and so it that, sounds like community is, is important to you as well. And, and something that you've yeah, that, found and cultivated there in Chicago. And that's, that's worth yeah. a lot, you know, I mean, um, some of us, myself included in this group have academic jobs that, you know, we don't, we're not in a, a you know, cultural capital like Chicago, you know, we're out on the fringes of wherever we are in state universities scattered across the whole country and, uh, you know, still have academic gigs, but maybe we don't have that, that community that, that, uh, you know, that you would have in, in sort of a, a cultural center like Chicago. Yeah, I think that's really been important to me that I, I, I realized that, I mean, I, I guess maybe I was always aware of it. I, I can't really, if you ask me when I, I recognize that that's so important to uh, uh, having a, a, a creative life, I'm not sure if I could say pinpoint it, but it might have been after I began uh, working in um, performance uh, at SAIC and and where I gained this sense, although I might have had that sense before I came there because I, I did feel like, yeah, even I went to um, undergraduate at Northern Illinois University. And I remember I did join um, student groups, you know, for art, you know, art students mm -hmm. and, and engage with them. So, yeah, I always understood that uh, was working together with people uh, was important and that you could help each other out. So, yeah, uh, community and uh, it's kind of mutual sharing of resources and talent and information has always been really important. Well, let's, this is a nice pivot point to talk about another community that you have been involved with, which is this whole acoustic ecology uh, movement mm -hmm. and organization. And this isn't just a community in Chicago, but it's a worldwide community uh, right. of people who are interested in acoustic ecology. Okay, so there's a composer, Matthew Bertner, Mm -hmm. who has a concept that he calls uh, musical eco-acoustics, where he embeds environmental systems into music and performance using technology. Uh, so lots of different, uh, lots of different kinds of technologies. Sounds, and he makes like soundscape compositions, uh, does all kinds of interesting work with like sub-ice microphones and... Uh, uh, a quad, what is it, the water microphones that you put down in the water? Hydrophones. Hydrophones. So yeah. he has an uh, organization called EcoSano, I think I'm saying that right, which mm -hmm. is a nonprofit environmental arts organization. It's a kind of collective. It crosses over into environmentalism, though, because he actually has environmentalists as part of his collective, but also musicians and artists who are working for, like, environmental sustainability. And yeah. So and, and creativity using nature and natural sound. So it's it's a little bit more. Uh, it's I think a little different from the term that you um, uh, throw out the acoustic ecology. I'm not yeah. sure. I mean, I'm sure they're they're related for sure. But tell, sounds like it. Yeah, yeah. So so tell me a little bit about if you had to define or explain what acoustic ecology is. What how would you describe that? 30-second elevator speech is that uh, acoustic ecology uh, explores and studies the interrelationship between the sound environment and uh, the creatures that live within that environment. Um, it understands that 
uh, not only humans but all other creatures uh, are are making the sound environment. Uh, uh, we use sound. Uh, we make sound. Uh, we communicate with sound. Uh, it affects us on many different levels, oftentimes unconsciously. The, it also places um, a high value on the uh, the role of listening. Again, since it studies this, it's uh, there's also an educational kind of uh, purpose or mission uh, behind it. And the the term historically uh, comes from um, R. Murray Schaefer, Raymond Murray Schaefer, uh, a Canadian composer and writer and music educator, uh, born back in 1931, and who uh, pioneered this idea of acoustic ecology. Um, in the 70s, early 70s, at Simon Fraser University uh, in um, near Vancouver, British Columbia, he published a book called *Tuning of the World*. And if you look that book, uh, you'll you'll read about um, what the culminating uh, research was of this group, this research group that was called the World Soundscape Project. Um, among the things they did was um, invent a lot of um, terms to help us describe um, our experiences and the phenomena that are actually occurring in, in the soundscape or the acoustic environment. Uh, soundscape one was one of those words, although it might have been used by a few others prior to that, but um, the, the term soundscape was really um, um, a kind of centerpiece for uh, their, well, it was part of their name, the World Soundscape Project, right? Uh, but he had other terms um, to describe features and phenomena of the soundscape. Yeah, and so those ideas caught on and um, spread some amongst people interested in radio in uh, Europe. Um, and eventually I came connected with it. I don't know if you want me to go this far. <laughs> with it but well, that no, was just the definition but yeah, yeah no so. i i'm very curious uh, to hear about uh anything that you'd like to talk about um yeah. I, I you know the organizations that you're involved sure. with the the yeah. world forum for acoustic ecology and the world right. listening project uh, you can talk about either of those yeah go i'd say just uh, as much yeah. as you want to say about it. i'm very interested in this uh in this kind of research and activity so just to draw uh, a a broad picture. Um, um, the um, the study of the environment um, um, was conducted initially uh, by a group, a research group, uh, and they all had a music background. So they didn't come from the sciences or from engineering, you know, which are you know science and engineering are also fields that deal with sound. But they came from a musical side of it. But they were interested in it in terms of uh, not just the aesthetic, which they did elevate the aesthetic role of, or, or the aesthetic um, impact of sounds, is, but also um, were concerned with it in, in terms of its social as well as its scientific role. So it really was a, um, and I hope it still is, a, an interdisciplinary uh, field. Uh, so um, you mentioned the world sounds, or not the, the um, the World Forum for Acoustic Ecology. That group got founded in 1983 at the Banff Center for the Arts uh, during a conference that brought together around 150 people from all around the world. 
that were interested in this or inspired. I learned about it and I came out there and I met all these people and I was um, deeply impressed and um, learned about uh, Murray Schaefer's ideas uh, and um, also Barry Truax and Hildegard Westerkamp, who were two of uh, the main uh, proponents and uh, were among those original researchers in the World Soundscape Project. And um, I still keep in touch with them. So I started applying these ideas in my teaching um, um, because, um, for one reason, uh, I wasn't teaching music courses, I was teaching sound courses. So how do you talk about sound, especially in a visual arts school where you can't even see it? I mean, you can make sounds, but to understand what the sound, what a sound is, why it exists, why it affects us in, in a certain way, uh, I, I think some of these ideas were really helpful to me. And it wasn't until about 2008 uh, when I, I met some folks that I knew in Chicago who had this idea of uh, field recording had become more um, interest or a, a more of a, a focus amongst people. And uh, there were groups that were using field recordings and just performing, doing live real-time mixes of recordings. Like uh, one group was the the Seattle Phonographers Union that my friend Steve Barsati was part of and uh, and my other friend uh, uh, Christopher De Laurenti. Uh, and, uh, and so they had this big group in Seattle that was doing this uh, and a group in uh, Boston started up uh, the New England Phonographers Union and uh, so uh, folks in uh, Chicago uh, Chad Clark and uh, Dan Gonston and uh, a long list of others uh, got involved in starting Chicago Phonography. That led to, um, and we started performing, and we still do performances as Chicago Phonography. But there was, because of this field recording interest, there was a connection or a curiosity uh, about acoustic ecology. We started up the World Listening Project. And from that, um, you know, it was just everything kind of moved really quickly. Then uh, I started a chapter of the Midwest, called the Midwest Society for Acoustic Ecology, which became um, the like a regional chapter of the uh, American Society for Acoustic Ecology, which uh, was affiliated with the World Forum. Mm -hmm. uh, the American Society started up in 2004, and um, there was a New York group. Uh, that my friend Andrea Poli had been part of, so um, and she actually encouraged me to to go for it, and so um, yeah, so we had uh, uh, these regional groups for our, our American national group, and um, things kept moving along, and a few years later, I found myself being invited to serve as the president of the World Forum for Acoustic Ecology, which is what I'm doing right now. If you're interested uh, I can tell you um, that the World Forum is a um, essentially a forum a way to keep all these international groups that are interested in uh, acoustic ecology uh, in touch with each other keep us connected but we also put out a um, an annual journal called soundscape the journal for acoustic ecology so that's a um, it's an academic journal so that's a, one of the resources we offer. Uh, other times we sponsor conferences and things like that. Um, sound walking is a part of our practice. So oftentimes uh, 
individuals, myself included, are organizing sound walks, field recording workshops, or creating databases to store uh, recordings of environments uh, for study of how the environments are changing um, uh, to to study um, uh, wildlife uh, and, and um, habitats and, and environmental health. Yeah, there's quite a long list of things. And there's also other fields. So when you were talking about Matthew Bertner, um, yeah. I think a lot of people are, are picking up on the interest and may not have heard of acoustic ecology before, but are, are kind of creating their own acoustic ecology independently yeah um, yeah there's some there's uh, some there's something in the zeitgeist right that that this is something that Mm -hmm. artists are starting to clue into and pay attention to i wonder if it has something to do with all of the the environmental issues that we're having today the global warming and uh you know people paying attention to more and more to environmental issues that's part of it right there and i've also thought that um the technologies uh, for sound uh, making, recording, and transmission have become more and more affordable and accessible. So everybody's walking around who has a, a mobile phone has a sound recording device. The the digital technologies make it possible to turn that device into your own portable radio station. Uh, you can using the internet. So all of this interconnectedness uh, just on the technological level uh, and then connecting that with environmental concern really heightens I think and intensifies the interest in acoustic ecology so uh, or other things that are concerned with the the quality of the sound environment and uh, all the relationships that we have with it and how we are making it, how it's making us, and so forth. So, yeah. uh, and is there any? Are there any events coming up related to acoustic ecology that are uh, things that are upcoming that people should know about? Or I, I noticed there is the World Listening Day coming up in July. That's sort of interesting. That's right. So, well, yeah, what's what's thanks. that about? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. That's on July 18th, and uh, happens annually, and. Um, uh, we invite people to uh, participate by um, organizing uh, people, events uh, relating to acoustic ecology, the, the soundscape, uh, listening especially. But we do it, you know, we invite people to participate on any level they want. So you can make it, you know, uh, you know like have a, a complex, um, you know, uh, event, you know, through an institution, whether you, you know, you're, you're at, a university or a, a grade school or at, uh, at a museum or some arts center or scientific uh, um, research facility, whatever. Um, uh, the National Park Service in, in the United States uh, engages with it. We've got people from around the world, you know, a lot of you know, participants from Europe as well. Um, and uh, you can ha- have a public event you know, engaging with those those uh, activities, yeah. or you can even make it a, a, a private and personal one. Usually, uh, uh, or at least for the past couple of years, we've been picking a theme for it as well. So this year, um, the theme is H two O, the molecular uh, name for water, and uh, so uh, we're drawing attention to water and uh, quality 
of water, uh, disasters and scarcity of it. There's so many things uh, that are essential to life, along with listening, that uh, uh, water has become a, a critical part of the environment. And so we're trying to connect those together with uh, World Listening Day. So to find out more, uh, the best thing to do is to go to the, the website for the World Listening Project, which is just worldlisteningproject.org. And all just one word. Uh, you should find the, uh, the description of the theme, the invitation. Uh, there's an online participation form, so we'd like people to fill that out so we can kind of gather up uh, information about how many people are actually active in this and use that information to gain even more uh, support uh, for World Listening Day in the future. And I always have to add that every day should be World Listening Day. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great note to uh, close out on. Every day is World Listening Day. I will make sure and include all the links that you just uh, mentioned, including your website, all of the organizations that we've been talking about, the acoustic ecology organizations. I'll make sure and list those in the show notes. Eric, any closing thoughts? To, to follow up on some of the ideas and things that have been mentioned, it's... I think uh, seeing your 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 list of the online links uh, would be helpful. You know, we, we mentioned the World Listening Project, my own What's New page uh, at ericleonardson.org is uh, a, a kind of a resource and a chronicle of my own activities, uh, but also uh, on the website for my of my own. Um, there's a page on experimental uh, instruments, uh, so I, I've meant that to be a, an educational resource for, for people that might be curious about contact microphones and coil springs and things. Um, uh, you know, of course, you can see the link to the video uh, on the, the springboard. It's just a, a little over four minutes long, uh, shot by uh, Joshua Baum, and he did a wonderful job of putting that together. So I I'm very grateful for that and for the support from Amherst College, where we uh, uh, made that video. Okay. So, um, yeah, that's basically it. Uh, oh, and, um, the next issue of Soundscape, the Journal for Acoustic Ecology, uh, is coming out. We're working on it right now. So hopefully we'll have that out within the next few weeks. Um you know, sometime, you know, this is uh, end of May, so uh, hopefully sometime uh, this June it'll be out. And we're hoping to get another issue out um, later uh, this year. Yeah, so check that out. We also have an online um, newsletter that's put out quarterly by the, the World Forum for Acoustic Ecology. So uh, check out the, the, the newsletter, uh, and the back issues are um, archived. If anyone wants to get involved, uh, they can b get in touch with us, uh, me about my own work, um, or if you're interested in what uh, the World Forum does or acoustic ecology locally, um, there's links to all of that on my website too. So, Well, uh, I think we've probably reached the end of our uh, time here. Eric, thank you so much for taking time out of your uh, touring schedule again. I uh, really appreciate it. And this was very illuminating, lots of uh, fascinating things to uh, go on. As I said earlier, but maybe it was even off the before we started recording, 
you know, I started when I was preparing for this uh, talk, I was looking at your website and it really is people that go to this, your website, there is so much information there to, you know, you can just follow link after link and uh, it's really a terrific resource. So thank you for uh, yeah. putting that together. You're welcome. Yeah. It's searchable too. Thanks to, uh, you know, it's just uh, using a WordPress blog. Great. Lots to digest. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you are. You're very welcome. And with that, we conclude this episode of Standing in the Stream, Conversations with Creatives. Again, I'm your host, John Lane. You can follow me on Twitter, at ThatJohnLane. You can find the show links and show notes on my website, john-lane.com, and follow the show on Facebook. Simply search for Standing in the Stream. Thanks to Danny Clay for our theme music. You can find him online at dclaymusic.com. I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives. Thanks for listening.